following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I would encourage you, in way of closing on those thoughts and prayer, read, look at resources that are available for you. Um, there's a wonderful ministry called the Gospel Coalition. I would refer them to you with great confidence of some of the articles that are written and some of the men and women who are part of that ministry. I went and was uh, at their conference this past April in Florida. They're putting out some wonderful work. Uh, There's some very good resourcing for you in our uh, resource center for your purchase to read. I hope that you read and don't just react. And I hope for us as Christians that our theology informs how we engage a flag on a pole how we engage the issues of race, how we engage the issues uh, of marriage and of uh, sexual preference and all of those different things, that our theology informs us, not our political ideologies. We have that reversed too often. And so I would encourage you to study the scriptures, study those who are wiser than yourself. I do. I read a lot of other people because what I realize is I get confused by everything going on. And the beauty of God is that he gives us men and women to go before us and to help us and to teach us. But more than that, even, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And so this morning, in light of that, we're going to ask God to come by his Holy Spirit and to teach us from his word. Many people say that it is the height of arrogance for the Christian church to believe that they can know true truth that we can know what God really says, that that is incredibly egotistical, that is incredibly prideful. But the reality is this, folks. We we know God's word and we know true truth only because God was condescending to come and to make it known to us. He came down on a mountain to tell uh, his people about himself in the Exodus story that we've been talking about. He came and through the prophets and through the apostles and through the writers of Scripture, canonized uh, the 66 books that we would know him. Not that we've ascended somewhere to know him, but that he condescended down to know and to be known by us. And so we can come to his word uh, by the power of his spirit and we can learn And so let's ask now his blessing on the reading of his word and the studying of it as we continue our look at redemption's journey through Exodus. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you come by your spirit and teach us that we would sit humbly under your word and its authority. And though it be uncomfortable and though it challenge us out of our status quo, out of our preconceived notions of spirituality and what does it mean to walk with you, would we be willing by your strength and power in great humility, to follow what you would see or call us to do today. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 33, and I will read uh, this chapter uh, for us this morning. This is the very word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, To the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments." 
For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to make a tent, take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. Far off from the camp, he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw that the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us, if it is not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading, to the hearing of it. Amen. We're going to jump right in for our time is quickly going. And we're going to look this morning at several things. We've seen the people of Israel moving now to Mount Sinai. They have rebelled against God. They have made their pagan altar and and idol of the calf that Moses came down from the mountain, God's anger burned against the people. Uh, there was punishment that was inflicted upon the people uh, for their actions. They felt the sting uh, of God's dis- displeasure with them. And now you would think, well, God's, he's, he's punished them and it's all over. But we begin in chapter 33 of A New Pilgrimage. That God is saying to the people, leave Mount Sinai, move towards the promised land. I'm going to go before you and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all the ites are going to be taken care of there. Uh, As you head into the promised land, I'm going to give you the promised land. But then God throws in a massive zinger. He says, but I'm not going with you. I'm not going to be in your midst. You can get all these blessings that you want from me. You can get all the privileges that you want uh, and that you've so desired from me. I'm even going to throw in heaven itself. I'm going to throw in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But me, personally, I'm not going to be with you. And the people were devastated. The people were overwhelmed for they understood what was happening. The gravity of that moment was not lost on the people of Israel or on Moses himself. It's very often lost on us, but not on them. 
And so what we're going to look at this morning is first this, we have a problem. There is a profound problem, and the problem is that our sin, that our sinfulness, that our uh, rejection of God, that our desire to self-rule and to do things on our own, how we want to do it, when we want to do it, that separates us from the Lord. It causes there to be a separation, a distance within our relationship. When that comes to mind, we realize we have a problem. When that comes to mind, how are we going to respond? What is going to be your response today uh, if you come and agree with this text and agree with the explanation of it? How are you going to respond to the Lord? And in your response, what is your response based upon? What is the hope upon which you are basing your response? And then finally, uh, what is the outcome of all of this? Well, the first thing is simply this. Sin separates us from God. There is an effect uh, of our sin in our relationship with the Lord. There is an effect relationally with God. We don't lose our salvation. One of the very tenets of our faith is the belief in the perseverance and the preservation of the saints, that God will always keep us, those who are truly born again, that we will not lose our salvation. But within the midst of this relationship with God, there is an ebb and flow of intimacy. There is an ebb and flow of presence. Uh, there is a sense in which David understood, God, I know that I'm not going to lose you, but please do not take your spirit away from me. Do not remove your very present hand from my life. This isn't an Old Testament concept, but this is a picture of what happens. You see, there's already beginning a little hint of it at the start of chapter 33. God would lovingly always talk about his people as my people. These are my people. But he says to Moses, take this people. A subtle shift, but a very profound one. You ever talked about someone you love, parents maybe, uh, who you speak of this child uh, that you would love and be loved, and then sometimes you speak to your spouse and you say something like this, this son of yours, this daughter of yours, this child of ours, uh, there's a brokenness and intimacy that's there. The relationship is beginning to be strained. And God then says in verse 2, all the way before, he says, I will send my angel or the angel of the Lord. We spoke in weeks before that we believe that that's the very presence of Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, God himself going with them. And look at the subtle but profound change that happened in verse 2. I will send an angel to go before you, just a rank and file angel. It's not going to be my son. It's not going to be my personal presence in your midst. It's just going to be any old angel. Now, it'll be cool, and it's an angel. I mean, goodness gracious, it's an angel. But it's not my angel, my son going with you. And the reason, he says, is this. You're a stiff-necked people. And for us, we don't know what that means. We're not an agrarian culture. But if you've ever been in an agrarian culture or been out and you've tried to put a yoke on a donkey or an ox or a mule or a cow or anything like that, they don't like to have a yoke put around them. They don't like to be wrangled in that way. And they stiffen their necks. And they are not going to be pliable, but they are going to stand in firm defiance to their master. I have absolutely no idea about this, but that's what it said in the books. I'm a city boy. But the reality is God says, that's what you people are like. 
When I come to you and I want to yoke myself to you, Christ said, take my burden upon you and I will bear it with you. I will yoke myself to you. And he comes and yokes himself to us. And he says, we will now walk together uh, in life together. We are that stiff-necked people. We strain our necks and we go, I don't want it. We want to be who we want to be, how we want to be. We do not like to be ruled. That's our deepest problem. Parents, your children's problem is your problem. They don't like to be ruled any more than you like to be ruled. I remember being so deeply offended in a job interview when I was told, Bill, you don't get to get this job. And the reason why is because there are times in the day that I need you to tip your hat, say yes, sir, and move on, and you can't do that. And I was like, you're right. I don't do well at tipping my hat, saying yes, sir, and moving on. I like to be right. And I like to rule my life. And God says, I can't hang out with stiff-necked people. Because people who want to build their own idols, who want to serve their own gods, who want to live life in the way that they want to live it, who want to come up with their own rules, who want to take my word, and who want to cut it apart and tear it apart and think that there are cultural norms that are in there and that aren't true and they aren't uh, transcendent above all other things, that these kind of people who are stiff-necked, I can't be in their midst because if I was in their midst, I would consume them in a moment. Because I am too pure and I am too holy and my glory is too brilliant for that. See, God says, I can't be dwelling with you. He said to Moses in verse 5, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. You see, he removes his presence from their midst. Folks, this is devastating news. This is news that shut down the culture of Israel at that moment. As word got out, think about the effect within our own country uh, when the Supreme Court and, and its statement this week, how quickly it went out into the culture and affected everyone. Everyone had an opinion on it. Everyone has been affected by that. It was one of those moments, one of those watershed moments uh, in the life of our country. And this is one of those watershed moments in the life of the country of Israel when God speaks and he says, hey, you can keep on going, but I'm not going with you. I will no longer be in your midst. Do you realize that the purpose of God giving all of the rules, remember all the stuff that we looked at last week about the tabernacle and the altar and all of that was so that his presence would always be in the midst of the people at the very center of the camp? And here because of their rebellion and their rejection of his rule in their lives, he says this, I'm no longer going to be in the very center of your camp because you've gone and you've worshipped other things. It's fascinating. When you go and you worship other gods, what you really are doing in the middle of that is you are causing God to be evicted from your life in the very present center of it. You see, it was a terrible thing. Peter Enns, a writer, wrote this, the significance of this turn of events cannot be stressed too highly. The whole purpose of the exodus was for God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will be firmly established in the proposed tabernacle by saying, go ahead, but you're going without me. The events of the previous 31 chapters are being undone. This is not merely a setback. It means the end of the road. And the people of Israel got it. 
You see, what they were seeing and wanting was they wanted all that God could give them, but they didn't really want God. You know, we find that in our own lives, that in the midst of this problem of sin separating us from God, we still find this very unique and interesting and fascinating thing. There is still blessing that God gives to us, even within the lack of intimacy, but it's from a distance. Listen to what God says, depart, go up from here, you and the people that I brought in the, from, the, from the land to the land which I swore you to you, the land of, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to your offspring, I'll give it. And I'm going to send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and you can go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. God is still incredibly faithful to his promises. There is still blessing within our lives. But sometimes we think this is what we want, is his blessing and not him. We want his presence, his gifts, but we don't want his presence. We want heaven. We want the promised land, but we want God. We want health and happiness and wealth and prosperity, and we want all of these things, but we don't want God because we know that if we get God, that actually is going to consume us in a way that says, if you want me, you've got to get holy. It affects your life. It affects how you live. It affects the way that you engage the world. It affects the way that you love your spouse. It affects the way that you love your children. It affects the way that you view wealth. It affects everything about you if you want me. But if you just want my stuff, okay. I was thinking about that this week. Think about your ites. What are your Canaanites? Maybe you want God to take care of cancer for you or cure you of some illness or some other physical malady that you have. What are your Amorites? Maybe it's a relationship. You want your marriage restored. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you want to have a child. Maybe you want your family to be blessed. What's your Hittites? To overcome an addiction, to get over a bad habit that you have to be able to stop smoking, to stop drinking, the effects of bad behavior? What are your parasites? Maybe you just want more money, or you want to get out of debt, or you want more wealth, or you want things like that. What are your Hivites? Maybe you're asking God to climb that ladder for you. You want success. You want reputation. You want to make the team. You want to be uh, the prom queen or king. You want those things. What are your Jebusites? Maybe it's grades and the honor roll. Maybe it's to get into the college of your choice or to get the job after school that you think that you have to have. And you pray and you ask God to do all of these things for you. And the fascinating thing is this. You can experience some of those blessings and never experience God. And you translate it just the opposite way. Oh, see, I've been healed. I've received this grade. I've gotten this thing. I didn't get this speeding ticket when I got pulled over and prayed like crazy. God, do this. Or you prayed the prayer of a college student. God, I didn't study one bit in all of this. And I just pray, though, that you give me a B. I'm not asking for an A because that would be greedy. So I just want a B. And I promise next time all of my life will be profoundly changed because you're so faithful. And then you get a B and you think that somehow you've gotten God. And God is saying this, be careful You can experience my blessings without experiencing me. The people of Israel were like the two sons of Luke chapter 15 who wanted everything that their father could give them but hated their father. They wanted all of his wealth. They wanted all of the banquet. They wanted all of the feast. They wanted everything, but they didn't want the father. 
John Owen, the great Puritan writer, wrote and he said, the greatest blow that you can ever deal to your heavenly father is to reject his love for you. God is saying, I can't give you anything more than me. That is your ultimate best and what you want is all the other stuff. If you want to hurt somebody in your life, the person maybe that you're sitting next to, if you want to deeply wound someone that you're in relationship with, let them know that you like the benefit of that relationship, but not them. I heard a husband who's hoping to be reconciled with his wife when asked, how much do you love me on a scale of one to five? And he said, two. But I'd sure like to stay married to you with all the benefits of marriage. You go, oh my goodness, what a jerk. Don't we do that to God all the time? God, I sure want all the blessings in this life. I I, I want everything that you've got for me. I just don't want so much of you because what I've heard about this whole thing with you is that you come in and you radically change my life. You call me to some holiness. You call me to some lifestyle that's different from everybody else. I just want to get to heaven and just get me there. I want my fire insurance. Nothing more, nothing less. So the question really has to become, and it really is the only question, and we may not get to all the other points because of it, but the only question is this. Do you want his presence? Or do you just want his presence? Do you want him? Or do you want what he gives you? It's shocking but true, one writer wrote. Most people want God to help them overcome whatever obstacles they are facing in life, and they want to reach a promised land, but they are not all that interested in having a personal relationship with the living God. They would be happy to have God defeat all their enemies and let them into his kingdom, even if he did not give them himself. In fact, this is what some people who claim to be Christians have tried to do. They've made a decision for Christ so they can get into heaven, but they are not living with him as their savior, their God, or their king. But Moses would have none of it. Moses said, God, we're not leaving this place unless you go with us. God, we don't want you to defeat our enemies. We don't want the promised land. None of it makes sense. The world and life doesn't make sense if you aren't with us. A happy marriage doesn't make sense if you're not in the center of it. Wealth and prosperity make no sense if you don't define it and help me understand what it means. I don't make sense. I don't understand myself unless I have your presence within my life. And so Moses put his fist down and put his foot down. Then he said, God, we're staying right here until you promise us that you'll go with us. We are willing to forego all the blessings as long as we know we have you. Isn't that an amazing response? Are you willing to say, God, whatever comes, comes. I'm willing to, I'm willing to face whatever it is that I'm facing. I'm willing for cancer to win. I'm willing to never get rid of this addiction. I'm willing for my marriage to fail. I'm willing for everything in my life to fall apart. I'm willing for everything to come apart at the hinges. As long as I know at the end of the day, I have you. Because none of it makes sense without you. 
You are the most important thing in my life. So I'll circle back to earlier in the liturgy today. When was the last time you prayed this powerful but simple prayer? God, today I'm not going to ask for anything else but you. I just want to know you more. I want to know you more deeply, more profoundly. I want to know you. And I will do whatever it takes to know you more intimately. I will go wherever it requires for me to know you more intimately. I will receive whatever you give to me in order for me to know you more intimately. Sometimes we experience things in our lives and we think that they're judgments from God. But what they really are is incredibly kind blessings of God to strip away a lot of other stuff and to say, I'm letting you have the opportunity to know me and for me to satisfy your deepest needs. I joked with Lisa the other day, I don't remember praying for patience today, darling, but God sure has given me opportunity. (laughs) Sometimes in your life, when you pray this prayer, he will give you the opportunity to respond. And the response of the people here, the response of the Israelites, was swift and it was clear and it was decisive. They repented and they changed. They realized that there was something impeding their relationship with God and they were willing to do whatever it took to remove that from their camp, to remove that from their life, and to get themselves right with God in this intimate fashion. To take care of it. To get rid of it. Verse 4 to 6. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The first thing the people did, and for some of us, what we need to do today is mourn. Is mourn under our brokenness of saying, God, I am sorry that I have put other things in front of you. I am sorry that I have used you and tried to manipulate you, and I have rung my bell and asked you to be my butler, to come and to serve me and to provide for me and to do what I wanted you to do on my schedule, and I haven't wanted you. I've actually resented you and hated you. I've been embarrassed to be even called a follower of yours. And God, I'm sorry to mourn under that. Wouldn't you mourn if your beloved, the person in your life who means more to you than anybody else, came and said this to you? I want to be with you. But in order for us to have this intimacy, you need to get rid of these other things. And if that person was truly your beloved, you would mourn and say, I'm so sorry that I've hurt you. I'm so sorry that my actions have caused a distance to come between the two of us. What do I need to do to be made right with you? That's what the people were saying. What do we need to do to be made right with you? And here's what God said, and it makes a lot of sense in our culture, doesn't it? Don't put on your ornamentation. Don't put on your gold earrings and all of your jewelry. We go, what? But he said, don't do that. Well, what most scholars believe is that was probably something to do with the specific way of idolatry and of pagan worship. Because if you were to flip back 
As a good scholar of the Old Testament to Genesis 35, you'd know that when Jacob renewed the covenant at Bethel, that he said to the people, now take off all of your ornamentation. And he buried it in the ground along with their idols. What God is saying is this, here's how you restore intimacy with me. Remove all the other idols that are in your life, all your other pseudo-saviors, everything else that you're asking to save your life, everything else that you're finding meaning for in your life. Remove those from their places of prominence and ultimate place in your life and allow me to have the prominence in your life. Do whatever is necessary uh, to come and to be made right with me. And the people did it immediately. It doesn't say that they just took them out. Look at the words that they did. It says they stripped them off in verse 6. God just simply said take them off. It said that they as fast as they possibly could stripped them off and got rid of them. They got rid of whatever impediment, whatever was impeding them from a deep and intimate relationship with God. Are you willing today to do whatever is necessary to get rid of whatever is impeding you from a deep and intimate relationship with God? Are you? Husbands, let me tell you something. If your wives are saying to you, I want you to be more tender with me. I want you to speak less harshly with me and to just listen more and talk less. Are you willing to do that? A loving husband who loves his wife as Christ loved the church would say, what else? What else can I do for you? Wives, if your husband comes to you and says, sweetheart, I'll make it easier for you. Sweetheart, that perfume makes me sneeze, and in order for me to hug you more often, you're going to have to stop using that perfume. Wouldn't you quickly say, gone, versus, you know, I paid a lot for this perfume. It really is the trend in the day today, and this is really your fault, honey, and if you could just get over your sneezing issues, and then we could be intimate together. Don't cast it onto the other person. Don't look at this with God and say, okay, God, a little quid pro quo here. I'm willing to stop doing this as long as you're willing to do this. God does not negotiate here. God simply says this, if you don't do it, I leave you. If you don't do it, we don't have intimacy together anymore. And so the people refuse to settle for any blessing apart from God's very presence. So do you love God more than you love his blessings? Are you willing to do whatever is necessary to get his presence in your life, to know him more deeply? Hopefully you've read, and if you haven't, I would recommend it to you. And that's this, the book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. And in it he wrote, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? The knowledge of God. Are you willing to do whatever is necessary to strip away what is ever impeding that and come into this deep understanding of the knowledge of God? My hope is yes. A couple of other things as we end real quickly. One, I just encourage you to look. The hope of the people of Israel is our same hope. They had a mediator. They had Moses who went into the tent of meeting and he met with God face to face as a man speaks with a friend and he beseeched God on behalf of Israel. 
We have a better Moses. We have a better Moses. For when we find ourselves in this place of lost intimacy with God and with other things in the middle of our relationship other than God, we have Christ who is willing to say this, I am your mediator, I'm your true Moses, and I'm willing to go and I'm going to stand and be consumed by this God on your behalf so that you get to have intimacy and relationship with him. If you want to be restored to God, find Christ. If you want to have a deep and intimate relationship with God, look to Christ, your mediator, and look upon him in such a way that says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to be consumed by his wrath and his anger so that you wouldn't have to be. A little different picture from that meek little Jesus carrying a lamb on his shoulders. Now do you understand why he wept and bled with holding a cup and saying, take this cup away from me? Because he knew that that cup would consume him. But here's the beauty. That mediator was consumed so we wouldn't have to be. Because then what comes from him being consumed and not us is this beautiful restoration. And we'll end here. Verses 5 to 10 of chapter 34. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And the Lord said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Behold your God who is in your midst. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Come, let's worship him. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to a convicting passage of Scripture which exposes us and challenges us and pushes us to a point, for some maybe, of despair. I pray that you would remove them from that ledge and you would point them to Christ and that he would remind them that he entered into the tent of meeting, that he entered into the holy of holies, that he was consumed and crushed for our iniquities, and now he tabernacles with us, in us. And Father, would by his power and spirit Would you give us strength to remove those other things that impede our relationship, our intimate relationship with you? And would we now behold you and worship you as your people have done throughout all the ages and will do for the ages to come? Amen. Let's stand and sing.